RadioInfluence.com. Why, Crusher, it's good to see you. You're listening to Crush Performance with the Crusher, Jeff Crushell. Get in on the talent grid and text Crush at 10 12 60 with your questions, comments, or smart ass remarks. Welcome to Crush Performance, everybody. I am Jeff Kershell, and we're your weekly source for performance information. Thanks for tuning in this week. If you want to get connected, go to crushperformance.com. Our email is info at crushperformance. If you have questions, comments, smart remarks, or you have a question or a topic you'd like us to investigate, let us know. Info at crushperformance.com. We answer every single message we get. On Twitter, at Jeff Crush, and on social media, Instagram, Facebook, our YouTube channel. Search out Crush Performance, and we will hook you up with the world of performance as we just look for ways to constantly get better. That's really what it's all about. And today's conversation is right in that wheelhouse. We're really, really looking forward to today. And this week we talked to crush favorite Dr. Joe Baker, exercise scientist from York University. And today we're going to talk about talent. And I'm going to ask the question, is talent real? One of the reasons I actually reached out to Dr. Baker for this interview uh, was because of a tweet that I saw on his feed. And it was uh, of his two labs wrestling on the ground in a sort of a funny caption that said, hey, I was just talking to my colleagues and I asked them the question, is talent real? (laughs) And these dogs are wrestling and fighting, of course. So I thought it was funny, but I did contemplate the question, is talent real? So I reached out to him because we've talked about this before. And it turns out that he's been having some pretty deep conversations as well with other experts in the area. So today we're going to talk about talent. Um, where does it come from? How do we develop it? What exactly is it? And maybe even most importantly, why are we so damn bad at predicting future talent? Because we are, we're horrific. Despite the best scouting strategies, years and years of experience, despite all the new technology that we have, we are not getting any better at predicting future performance in athletes. Or in any area where humans are trying to perform for that matter. Music, acting, school, we're just terrible. Could it be we're looking in the wrong places? We're not measuring or evaluating the right things that might lead us down a path where we might be able to not just predict future talent, but also help hone it, grow it, and develop it? Possible. Or is it likely or more likely that predicting future talent is just so so complex that it's unpredictable. Well, that's going to be the conversation today. And I'm looking forward to it, especially at this point in time, because we're starting to see a return to sport from this COVID shutdown. A very exciting time, though we still have to proceed with extreme caution. Because listen, we're not in front of this COVID thing yet. We're playing catch up and we don't really know what's on the other side of this thing. Without a vaccine, are we going to see another windfall of infections this fall it is is getting back into action going to cause a massive spread again i think if we're all smart and we all work as a team we're going to be okay until that vaccine comes around and we're all protected but until then boy we're getting a mixed mixed messages on this return to play we're starting to see in pockets of the u.s youth baseball startup 
And I think it's great for the kids. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for it. I really, truly am. I, I, I wish we could even just, even with social distancing pra- practices, we see it in our grocery stores. Uh, we see businesses starting to open. I don't see any reason if the coaches and parents and athletes are smart, we can't get into a more structured, even semi-social gatherings to start practicing with our youth, but we have to follow the guidelines right now. We're just not sure. We don't have enough information yet. Hopefully that's coming down the pipeline, but we are starting to see baseball being played in the U S tournaments are taking place. Youth baseball. Uh, we're starting to see some of the uh, programs uh, kick off and, and that's exciting as long as everybody's safe. So we watch with great interest. We're starting to see it uh, in Europe. Baseball in Czech is going full tilt. Uh, Sweden, is something to watch right now because we're starting to see the aftermath of their soft shutdown, their soft response to the COVID. And uh, they have, a, unfortunately, a very high casualty count. Um, so we watch their, their society and their data with great interest. And in Italy, one of the places hardest hit in the world with one of the most aggressive shutdown responses to COVID, they're starting up again. And it sounds like in the next few weeks, they're going to be returning to sport as well under very, very strict, slow guidelines, which I like. So let's wade through this as a team. Let's proceed with caution and let's get out there and get active. In the meantime, in between time, what can you do to make yourself better? Well, again, we've been talking about it almost every week since the start of this this whole mess. Um, Stay sharp during the shutdown. Challenge yourself. Stay organized. Stay in the wheelhouse. Great conversation with Jim Fannin last week. Oh my goodness. Chris Woodward the week before that talking about performance cultures. If there's one thing that's really come out of this COVID shutdown, it is the massive sharing of information online. These Zoom calls and Zoom webinars and Zoom courses or online courses have just been fantastic. Go to meeting. There's new video platforms that are just spectacular. It's popping up all over the place. It's keeping us connected. And I think coming on the other side of this, we're going to see social media uh, being used in maybe a different way. We're getting really concerned about the social media and the screen time of our youth, you know, making them almost antisocial. But now, could it be this is a nice little turning point, a silver lining, so to speak, is we're really recalibrating how we're going about using the social media. And I think it's fantastic. So a lot of good things have come out of it. And I think as we slowly return to sport here, there's still a lot of communication that, that needs to happen. And the conversation last week with Jim Fannin, oh my goodness, what a fantastic talk. So many unbelievable takeaways there. But I think for me, if there was one thing that I really, really responded to or, or one thing that really resonated with me was the idea of the constants. And I think Jim's words, and I'm going to paraphrase here, maybe this is a quote, but it went something like, the individuals with the most constants will prevail. And what are the constants? Well, that's just getting organized. You know, it's stuff we talk about here at Crush Performance all the time, way back to the late 1990s. A daily plan, a weekly plan, periodizing and analyzing and setting out a strategy for, for the year, for our four-year plan for our Olympic athletes and for our younger Olympic athletes, eight-year, 12-year plans. For our pro guys, where are you at right now? What do you need to do to get to the next level? All this planning comes down to you being in the moment, but controlling the things around you. And that comes from the constants. When you wake up, when you eat, when you train, 
okay? When you read and educate, when you go to work, just having this regular daily routine is, is sort of the foundation that it's all built on. From there, we can go anywhere. So great conversation with Jim Fanny. You can go back to the website, crushperformance.com and get that conversation again. I want to thank Jim for that great talk because boy, oh boy, lots to think about there. Really, really helpful stuff. Great stuff. And you know, right now it's an exciting time as we return and the pro leagues are working to, to get back. And you know, we're, we're hearing talks about the NBA playoffs coming back, the MLB working through all the logistics of launching their season. The Bundesliga in Germany has started and everybody's watching that with great interest in Taiwan and the Pacific Rim, they're playing professional baseball. And now they're actually allowing with social distancing fans in their stadiums. So that might be something that, you know, if it works out, okay, if that experiment works and they're being very cautious, uh, something that other leagues may adapt. So that's exciting as well until again, we get that vaccine and get everybody safe. And the NHL, I think is maybe the closest here in the North American sports market to uh, returning to play. There's serious, serious conversations about getting these playoffs in. Some of the players are hoping that they, they get more games in before the playoffs and for good reason, the fans, oh my gosh, even if you're not a fan of the NHL, what a fantastic season this has been. Like just great races, some great performances. And we talk about this all the time. Oh, so close. And we're also close on a couple different levels. You know, if you look at it, the NHL has played up to the shutdown 85, just over 85% of their entire season. So they're so close to being done. And I was listening to our good friend, Jason Greger. You can check him out, jasongreger.com. A uh, great sports announcer up here in Canada, really follows hockey um, and has, has great information. And he was just talking about some of the numbers that were just so close to achieving this season. And he talked about Alex Ovechkin. Alex Ovechkin has 48 goals in 68 games a season, two more goals to get 50. And if he were to get 50, it would be the ninth time in his career that he has a 50 plus goal season, which is incredible in itself, but also ties in with Mike Bossy and Gretzky with the most seasons with 50 goals. Can you imagine being two goals away? And I think, well, of course he missed the game earlier on, I think due to suspension, he would have had two more goals possibly. Oh, do we play a few extra games just for that alone? For Ovechkin, he got his cup last year, which was fantastic. I mean, that was something you got to be happy about, whether you're a fan of the team or not, just for for his sake, because uh, he's done so much for the league and he's such a great player. It was really, really good to see him get a cup because, man, so many great players never get the chance. And then if you look at also Connor McDavid, listen to this. Gregor pointed it out. McDavid has 97 points in 64 games. He easily would have gotten 100 points this season had they been able to play out the entire season. And that would have made him only the 13th player in the history of the game to have 100 points in four consecutive seasons. Imagine that. He's only 23 years of age, by the way. The Oilers are so lucky to have McDavid. Well, let's face it. Hockey's lucky to have McDavid. He is one of those faces of the sport type of players. Just really, really solid off and on the ice. Um, but but a good person all in all. So so good for him. Again, another reason, man, I just love to see them. If there's any way to play, play out the season and get into the playoffs or, or play a few extra games to see if we can get some of these in. Another one that uh, Gregor mentioned as well that I thought was interesting, and there's a lot, but th these three really caught my attention because they're just so close and they're such amazing feats. Austin Matthews has 47 goals, and he was set up to be the fourth player in Maple Leaf history 
to score 50 goals in a season. Imagine that in one of the NHL's longest standing historic franchises, being the fourth player to score 50 goals in a season. And you're just a couple short, 47 goals. Oh my goodness. And there's lots of other stories like that. But if you're a fan of sport, those are the stories that that's why we love sport. Those are the stories that make up sport. So it'll be interesting to see how the NHL comes back and it'll be interesting to see how these other sports move forward. And it's certainly going to be interesting to see youth sport get back into it just for the health and wellness of our youth. In the meantime, in between time, let's make sure we're staying safe. Let's say, let's make sure we're doing it right. And if we're not involved in sport, let's make sure we're doing things just to get better. Even if it's just getting out and messing around, playing or trying a different sport. So many things you can do out there in your backyard, in your street, or with your brother, sister, or parents that you can just start messing around and get better. Make yourself a more well-rounded athlete, really expanding your talent. And that's really what it's all about. Okay, so let's get into it. Coming up right after this quick break, Dr. Joe Baker, sports scientist from York University. We're going to talk about talent, talent development, and why are we so damn bad at predicting talent? Coming up right after this on Crush Performance. Stick around, everybody. Find out what it takes to be a top performer. Get the Crush blog, podcast, and newsletter at crushperformance.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, hey, welcome back to Crush Performance, everybody. Jeff Kershell here. Listen, if you want to get in touch with us, reach out. Crushperformance.com is the website. Info at Crush Performance is the email. If you have a question, comment, or if you have a topic or something you'd like us to help you with, let us know. We answer every message we get and... We've dedicated segments, even entire episodes of the show to ideas that have come in through the mailbox. So we know if somebody's thinking about it, probably a lot of people are thinking about it. And sometimes, just like we challenge ourselves to get our audience thinking about things that they might not be thinking about, listen, you guys really challenge us sometimes to think about things we don't maybe normally think about. So it's a great, great partnership and we love it. Well, today we're loving this conversation because it's so important across the board. How can we better understand the complexities of athlete and talent development and talent ID? We've been doing it for thousands of years. There's great new technologies out there. Are we getting better or what don't we clearly understand when it comes to developing talent and acquiring skills and in predicting current states of performance and predicting future potential? Well, to help us shed some light on these very topics is Crush Favor, Dr. Joe Baker, sports scientist from York University. Dr. Baker, thanks for joining the show once again. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. All right. Well, listen, uh, I know this has been a very interesting time for everybody, uh, but it's also a time that's maybe allowed us to reflect a little bit on on the bigger pictures. You know, I just uh, attended one of the webinar that you did for the sport of Northern Ireland, talking about making better decisions and challenges on talent selection. And it was a fantastic conversation that, you know, if there's if there's one thing that's come out of this whole shutdown crazy time we're in, it's um, the sharing of knowledge. And, you know, a lot of this this sharing has really got people thinking about maybe things they haven't thought about before. And I guess that's maybe an upside if there is one. Yeah, I agree. Like if you, if you're on social media at all, the thing that you've seen explode is the podcasts and the webinars and the connection between individuals because they have this uh, level of, of uh, availability that they haven't had in the past. And 
Um, hopefully it's allowed sport organizations and individuals interested in delivering that content uh, to um, to figure out how to do it more seamlessly and and, and easier um, because you know it would be a real shame if the the kinds of uh, excitement that we're seeing online was to end when the world gets back to normal because I think you know these things as tools for coaches or practitioners or even for scientists um, they're they're shining right now is how valuable and, and and accessible this kind of content is for people and i think they're gonna they're gonna start to rely on it and if things go back to normal um you know i'm, I'm thinking about guys like rob gray who's got the perception action podcast who's doing a podcast almost every single day and and the content there is just mind-blowing um it'd be a real shame if we you know we lose that access to that but eventually i'm assuming that some of that stuff's gonna have to change but it wow what an exciting time to be uh to have that kind of availability to watch that stuff yeah it sure is i think yeah and rob's stuff is incredible and i think that's gonna be part of the new norm i think we're gonna maybe make a a little bit of, of a nudge here a shift in the way we operate and this is gonna be a big part of it well Speaking of operating, I think this is where I'd, I kind of wanted to start our conversation today, kind of getting back into the making of Joe Baker. You know, um, we look at your areas of interest when when we sort of look at your, your um, uh, I guess, resume at the university there and development and maintenance of expert performance. And then from the psychology side, the factors of influencing involvement long term. So it's an interesting background, an interesting area of interest. What drew you to this side of human performance, Dr. Baker? I guess it's probably uh, like a lot of scientists. It started, uh, you know, with personal interest. Um, I was an athlete uh, before I got my PhD. I was a, a triathlete, and I always kind of focused on, um, you know, personal training and and how I could make myself a better competitor. Uh, and so I really latched onto this idea of deliberate practice when it was first proposed, um, because it resonated with me that you know this this empowering idea that if you wanted to get better, then all you needed to do was train smarter and and harder and more consistently. Uh, and then you know as I explored that in my PhD uh, and started to look around the edges of parts of that argument that didn't quite fit, you got a sense of just how complex this process of athlete development is. And for me, that that just opened the floodgates. And now we look at everything from you know, the, the biology to the environment, to the to social interaction that needs to occur. How do we develop um, things for one athlete that don't work for another um, and, and sort of challenging these assumptions that we have in athlete development uh, and sport about a, a one size fits all approach to all athletes. For me, that just does not seem to fit with uh, uh, the experiences that we're having with, uh, with the data that we're getting from athletes in sport. And so, um, on the one hand, that's a challenge because policymakers and people working in the field want to have guidelines and recommendations that they can use to build their uh, their practice on. But on the other hand, it's really exciting because it suggests that there's this complexity to understanding, um, you know, athlete development and those kinds of things that really put the art back in the art of coaching and the art of athlete development. And I think I think it's important to have that balance between you know, this scientific approach with where the assumption is, this is just an equation that we have to figure out and the art, uh, you know, the art of coaching approach, which is 
hey, there's a level of complexity here that, um, you know, we need to look at at an individual by individual basis. And it might not be something that we can fix with a one size fits all uh, model. So, you know, th those kinds of arguments are exciting for me. And um, we've just we've taken those kinds of models and applied them to maintenance and function of performance over the lifespan, because the same arguments seem to apply. If you want to be healthy and have high levels of function, as you get older, you need to practice, you need to be involved, you need to be engaged. And it's exactly the kind of messaging that we give to uh, developing athletes. You want to get better at this thing that you're weak in, you need to practice it. You need to train it. You need to surround yourselves with people who are going to help you develop those capacities. The same argument applies to function uh, as we get older. So, you know, they look like they're separate um, topics, but really they're under this umbrella of if we want to understand how to maximize individual performance, whether that's somebody going to the Olympics or the average person on the street who just wants to have a healthy, fulfilling life, um, the arguments and the mechanisms to do that are essentially the same. Well, it's interesting. And, and I like the concept of Long term, I like this whole lifespan and in, in sort of this this big all encompassing approach because it is a process. And you know, I, I do follow you on Twitter, and I have a lot of fun just sort of you know reading the the social media, especially on Twitter. I, I kind of enjoy because it it's short and quick. Uh, but a couple of tweets that I just want to maybe run by you, and one's pretty relevant to this conversation. I believe it was a, it was a while ago, but there was a tweet where you said um, jobs you had. That they sort of got to where you are today. And I thought that was pretty interesting, you know, um, looking at all the different jobs you've had in developing to who you are today, uh, kind of kind of along those lines. Yeah, and I think it, um, you know, on the one hand, it, th those kinds of jobs, because I didn't start out with the most beneficial environment, um, those always sparked to me the, the question of, well, what if things were different? What if I... Um, started training earlier. What if I had better coaching and and more money to uh, you know to afford coaches and and things like that? How would things have been different? Yeah, you know, I'm not in the position to want things to be different. I think things are amazing uh, for me right now, but it does kind of uh, you know the questions that I have around uh, the what ifs are never about genetics. They're always about environment. How if I had a different environment, how would have things changed? If I turned left instead of turning right, how would that have affected things? Uh, and so I think that's why in our research we focus more on the environment. We don't, you know, we don't minimize the role of biology or genetics, but it, we just kind of set that to one side and say, yeah, obviously it has an impact, but we can't really do much about that. We can affect the the environment and the way that the genes interact with the environment. And so that's where we spend uh, the majority of our time. What's the best environment um, for developing whatever outcome we're interested in exploring? Yeah. And it's interesting because there seems to be two really um, strong sides to this argument and, or, or this viewpoint or, or this the discussion, we'll maybe put it that way, the nature versus nurture. And uh, another tweet that, that came out recently that, that really sent me down the road to reaching out to you again was, um, a, a tweet with your two dogs wrestling on the ground and it said, is talent real? You know, you're, <laughs> you're having a discussion with your, with your colleagues. And the, the tweet was, is talent real? And I'm not going to lie to you. I'm, I'm not going to say I lost a ton of sleep over that one, but it really got me <laughs> thinking deeply about that, to that very topic. And it's a deep one. It is, but it's also one of those, um, you know, on the one hand, the way that we understand talent right now uh, positions it as an unknow uh, unknowable or untestable uh, argument. And so, 
you know, I think that's one of the reasons why this concept of talent has persisted for, you know, a hundred, a hundred plus years as a research concept and possibly a couple thousand years as a, you know, an abstract concept is because if we were to get 10 people and ask them for their definition of talent, we'd probably get 10 different definitions. And when we have something so vague, it's, it's great for arguments and water cooler discussions, but it's not super helpful from a research standpoint because it's hard to design a, a study uh, where we uh, where we're trying to test a concept that doesn't have an operational uh, definition and so that was one of the things that I wanted to emphasize in this this tweet that started as this kind of funny thing with my dogs wrestling on the on the floor was hey this is a concept and an argument that we just continue to go around and around and around on uh, because a lot of the research that we're doing these days is trying to come up with a way to define this so that we can test it. Because I think the fact that we don't have good designs and nobody's really pushed this concept um, is keeping us back. It's holding us back in terms of moving on from this discussion that we've been having for at least the last 125 years. We're talking with Joe Baker, sports scientist from York University. Well, you've got me thinking about it for sure. And it, it brought back a lot of... Um, the readings from the past and a lot of the great research on the topic. And there's again, two sides to this coin and some of them are quite strong, but I, 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 it made me think of um, research done by Sozniak and Bloom way back in the day where they were looking at talented youngsters. And uh, one of the sort of summary points that they made was, you know, they're going in expecting to see exceptional human beings, exceptional talent. And you know, what they did find, however, was an exceptional environment. Um, and, and I thought that that stuck with me and I thought that was a pretty powerful finding for some, some, uh, really respected researchers in the area of talent and talent development. Yeah. And I think that, you know, developing talent in young people book that Bloom published in the eighties is really, um, undervalued now, uh, as a foundational text for the, the kinds of discussions that we're having. Um, and so, you know, one of the ways that I think we need to be thinking about the, the context of the data that Bloom got is is we still have this tendency to to look at those findings and assume that the environments that they created were these, you know, either um, explicitly designed for them uh, or they just luckily uh, ended up in those environments because of the chance of having good parents or, or whatever it is. But we, we don't normally consider the fact that, hey, maybe those athletes or those musicians or mathematicians or whatever group it was in Bloom's book that they were talking about, maybe they created that environment for themselves. And that's one of the things that we're starting to really build into arguments around how we need to move this discussion forward is um, in the sports system, there's this assumption that if we don't select kids early enough and put them in the best beneficial environments, then they're going to get lost from the sport. Um, and I don't know that that's necessarily true because I think there's, there's this fundamental drive that humans have to demonstrate their competence uh, in areas. And if we let kids explore and we give them more opportunities to try different things, different sports, I think they'll gravitate to the one where they feel the greatest sense of competence. That's just the thing that seems to be hardwired in us. And so um, maybe those environments that Bloom and Sosniak were talking about were actually created by the person because those are the kinds of environments that they thrive in. 
um, this kind of thriving, this drive to thrive, um, seems to be one of these universal motives for human behavior. So can we take advantage of that by thinking about sport and athlete development in a different way? For me, that's an exciting question because it means, hey, we don't actually have to select kids. They'll give them the opportunity to make their own selection. Uh, and we might, we might not see the system change in the negative. We actually might see it improve with less resources that we can now use to manage um, athletes better later in the uh, athlete pathway. For me, that's an exciting question. Yeah, it really is. And one of the questions that we bounce around on our end here, you know, we, we talk, often talk about top performers. And of course, a few years ago, Tiger Woods was a, a big conversation piece for, for maybe not the best reasons, but it opened up a whole window of just the human side of, of everything that goes on. And we were sitting around in a group one day having a conversation much like this, you know, what made Tiger so great at his sport. And, you know, there's very few um, world leading performers that would take a step back and, you know, re, re reconfigure his grips so he can maybe tap into even more performance when he's already one of the best performers in the world. Um, you know, one of the questions that was uh, floored was, you know, if, if his father hadn't had an interest in golf or maybe hadn't introduced him to golf, would Tiger have even golfed? I mean, what an interesting question. Yeah. And it's interesting because, um, you know, if, so golf is the environmental element, right? Like the obsession, the drive, the, the, the need to please, um, his parents, whatever, whatever that primary motive of Tiger's early engagement was, if we, if his father was, a you know, loved darts instead of golf or loved um, uh, soccer instead of golf, would we have seen the same dominance in Tiger if he was just put in a different environment? I think it's a amazing um, thought exercise to have. But I think it, you know, that what it does is it emphasizes the complexity of all the different, um, you know, balls that were in the air at any one time. There's the the almost obsessive nature of his dad. There's the personality characteristics that Tiger brings to the equation. There's the fact that, um, you know, that, that he was in an environment where he probably got a different kind of feedback because he was a different kind of player than every other player that was playing the game. And so, you know, there's, there's a bit of um, the, the time in which Tiger uh, emerged on the scene that's probably more relevant than people give credit for. Uh, all these kinds of things just speak to the complexity of this thing that uh, at least in talent identification settings, we kind of undermine as being this simple process it is not a simple process. It's probably one of the most complex things that we ever ask people to do. Um, you know, we don't, we don't look at kids going into kindergarten or grade two and say, well, no, you're a scientist that your pathway now is scientist. You're, you're a doctor. Your pathway now is doctor. You're a, uh, construction worker, your pathway is construction worker, but we do that all the time with kids in sport. Um, and, uh, and I think we do that because we assume that these relationships that we're predicting are simple. They're not, they're complex, they're sophisticated, they're nuanced. We need to start appreciating that. Yeah. And I think one of the greatest examples of the power of environment, at least in my mind, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this is uh, Laszlo Polgar and the Polgar Chess Sisters. We had Judith on the show a couple years ago, and I'm not going to lie to you, it was a fantastic conversation. We really got some insights into what their life was like as they grew up in this environment that was designed for one sole purpose. And boy, it, it worked across the board, but, but what an interesting study that is. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think there's, 
the risk of that is um, assuming that you could take any average person off the street and do the same thing. Right. And I think um, the, the Polgar uh, family is, is an amazing example of uh, something that, on at least on the surface, seems to have worked, right? Like the, the way they constructed the environment. Uh, if, if you wanted to create uh, world-dominant chess players, then yeah, perfect. You have achieved that outcome. Uh, for me, I think... You know, the risk is to look at that and, and, and think that you could take any person off the street and do the same thing, uh, right. which for me uh, undermines the complexity of what happened there. So, you know, for me, I would like to know how many similar families tried to do exactly the same thing, either in chess or some other activity and were just absolute failures. Um, because it, without that denominator uh, in our equation, we don't really know what the proportion of success is. And so, um, you know, it's easy to find those examples of the Tiger Woods or the Polgars um, or, or other um, individuals who have had this kind of more deliberate practice, hard, intensive focus, um, obsession, uh, and seen success, but is that the most efficient and effective way to design an entire system um, for for developing that? It's you know I would look at that example and say, well, that's a really resource intensive system for the development of uh, individuals that probably isn't as relevant when we talk about larger numbers of individuals, no larger numbers of people that we're trying to develop in you know sport kept with a capital S. Um, more broadly, I don't know that we could have a system like that, regardless of how effective it is for for creating those expert um, uh, chess players. I don't know that that's a system that you could implicate or Im- uh, implement on a widespread scale. Yeah, no, and I think you're right there. We're talking with Joe Baker, sports scientist from York University. So let's get back to the question in your tweet. Is talent real? And I know there's not a straightforward answer to this, but but what a, what an interesting uh, question it poses. And I think it has relevance right down to the grassroots because, you know, kind of um, relevant to our conversation about, you know, deliberate, intense, you know, targeted, focused training is also the data that we have on early specialization and, and the downside of, of focusing too early on a single sport in lifelong participation. So we've got all these sort of uh, incredible data points that we can use as a reference, and yet still it's, it seems to be um, a moving target, so to speak. Yeah, and I think that's part of the part of the problem with why the the question isn't really going away. Like, I think I could make a pretty strong argument using um, you know models from evolutionary science that talent is a real thing. It doesn't make sense that everyone in a population is equally predisposed to success in you know an unlimited number of areas, and that all you need to do is practice. Well, that that argument doesn't make sense from an evolution standpoint. Um, the more interesting question to me is, okay, if we agree talent exists, that doesn't mean we can measure it. That doesn't mean we know uh, what it looks like in an early performer. Um, And so I could agree that talent is real, but I would also disagree with the fact that it has any real world utility because I don't think we're very good at measuring it. I don't think we have a good handle on what it means for long-term athlete development um, because I think we're looking at this equation or this uh this um dichotomy as if it's uh, too simple it isn't we're we're always a complex web of both nature and nurture and when you try to separate these things into separate component parts you're devaluing how complex we are uh as 
as biological creatures, like in and the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. Sport is maybe one of the most complex things in human behavior for us to talk about. And we're treating it as if it's as simple as, well, this is your nature and this is your nurture. Um, no, it's way more complex than that. Yeah. And I, I you know, in your, in your webinar with uh, sports, uh, uh, Ireland, uh, making better decisions, challenges of talent selection. Uh, you talked a lot about the art, the art of coaching. And I thought that was a real strong message sort of, you know, mixed into the the whole in, in, presentation. And I really, really enjoyed that presentation. And it kind of brings us to where we're at right now. So moving forward in, in this early talent ID industry that's come up, I, it kind of draw. I'm not going to, um, I'm not even going to hesitate to say it. It kind of drives me crazy, this early a talent ID uh, industry that's sort of evolved because we're really not good at identifying or predicting talent. And uh, your presentation yesterday was, was fantastic. I thought. Yeah. And I think we're only starting to really understand the implications of what this early um, uh, talent selection industry means for sport. Uh, Ross Tucker, who's a scientist from South Africa, calls it the race to the bottom that, um, you know, <laughs> we keep going earlier and earlier with selections. And what it means is we're compromising longer and longer term development of these athletes based on the assumption that we know what early talent looks like. All the evidence suggests that we don't. Um, and when we design systems where we shut the doors for people that aren't selected early, like a lot of these elite hockey programs and hockey schools are doing, um, you'll have a system that looks like it's effective, but without having any controls of alternative ways of developing these players, you don't know whether your system is effective or not. All you've done is created a closed system um, without understanding the implications. And so I agree with you 100% that we need to have better attention to what these early selection policies and, and, and um, you know, movements from an entrepreneurial uh, side of things and, and the consumption side of things, what they're actually doing to our sports system as a whole. Dr. Baker, if we consider this incredible time we're in right now and look at what's happened with sport across the board from grassroots, the, 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 the most entry level um, development sport with young kids, our youth, right up to our professional athletes, we're potentially going to lose entire seasons of sport here. If we were just to sort of take this point in time and look forward, what do you think this does to the overall development? Now, we're just to preface that we're trying to frame this up as a massive opportunity to train, get better and do things we wouldn't normally do in the world of a, a regular sporting season. Um, but that being said, missing an entire comp uh, competitive season has, has got me thinking as well in in these crazy times. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, the, this is an unprecedented time for, uh, for our species and for sport in general. And so, you know, it would be a real shame if we didn't try to gain something from this experience. And so when I talk to people in sport and I talk to in particular to parents with kids in sport, I get them to focus on, well, what is it about sport that your kid's missing right now? And almost across the board, I haven't had a single person say they, my kid misses winning. Uh, or my kid misses, um, you know, being the best. It's they miss their friends, they miss the enjoyment, they miss being outside and and interacting as part of a group. Uh, and so for me, I think we need to take those messages because they're really um, profound and and pervasive. And now, okay, if we if we have an opportunity to redesign our youth sports system, these are the kinds of things that we emphasize. And luckily for us. 
if we emphasize enjoyment and connection and, and these kinds of things, we're going to build intrinsic motivation, which is necessary for long-term athlete development without thinking that we're compromising long-term athlete development by not having these achievement um, related outcomes being emphasized. And so, you know, I think on the one hand, um, it's 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 negative because we're going to see sport programs that uh, don't survive this, you know, uh, possibly 12 months of no sport. Uh, on the other hand, it does give us an opportunity to look back and say, well, what are the things that we want our programs to actually be focusing on and achieving? And, and where do we want our resources, whether those are resources we're paying in uh, entry fees or tax resources that are coming from our governments? How do we want those fees to be spent uh, to design programs that are better suited to what we actually want sport to deliver? I don't necessarily see those, you know, positive youth development things and the high performance things as being, um, you know, uh, on opposite ends of that coin. Um, I think that we can develop both of those things in, in parallel. Yeah. And I think so too, that's an interesting perspective and I really appreciate that. And I think there is a hidden opportunity here and we actually, well, we have no choice, but try to respond in the best way possible because these are unprecedented times. Um, coming out of it, you know, we're talking about, you know, trying to look at ways for our athletes to um, help them perform at a new level. And there's so many options out there. And, you know, we talked earlier about all the information online, um, the big picture and getting back to the art of coaching and maybe the art of talent development. Um, there's there's so many things being thrown out there. And maybe it's because it's sort of been industrialized. We've got a, a real monetary model now surrounding youth development sport. I think the latest number is you know, youth sport in North America generates $19 billion of revenue through specialized programs, travel programs, private training, and all of these sorts of, of services that are now available. It's generating more money than, than, than any of our major professional sports. And um, along with that comes all of the bells and whistles and shiny things that might be um, attracting people down a path that they might not be ready for or might not be ready for them. So we've got a bit of a conundrum going on in the developmental world right now. And I'd like to see what, what you think about what's happening out there with, with all the different possibilities for, for these athletes. Yeah, I think it's, you know, the, 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 um, the big limitation of social media and, and all these opportunities that are now available in the public space is it's hard to separate the wheat from the chaff. And, um, and, and so we have to rely on, um, you know, our experts, our, um, our, our knowledge brokers in a way that we've never had to before. And so um, it's interesting because hopefully you know, we would we would see those systems over time through natural selection in the public space just get weeded out because they're ineffective. And through the tests of time, um, we found which ones work and which ones don't. Right now, I think because of what we're experiencing at the moment, there's an emphasis from parents to not lose an entire season or to use this time to keep their you know, their child athlete focused and, and training so that they can take advantage of, you know, maybe their peers not doing the same thing. And so they've been looking for these tricks and, and, um, uh, and things that can help them be better performers. For me, I think that's a risk um, because we know the secret to success. It's time on task. It's deliberate uh, focused training. It's, uh, it's equally deliberate and focused recovery. Um, it's managing all the other elements of your life so that you can manage 
maximize adaptation in the training space. It's all that kind of stuff. There's no secret to long-term athlete development. Uh, and so when I see people um, on social media saying, here's the secret that always kind of, you know, first it's the cringe response, but it's also <laughs> the, you know, as, as somebody who has a lot of uh, experience in this world, I know uh, bad products versus good products, but I wonder whether the average parent who just wants something that can help them keep their athlete focused or save a bit of time or give them that little bit of benefit, whether they're able to separate the, you know, the really interesting, good ideas from the poor ones. Yeah. And that's a tough one because the marketing campaigns and, and the, the, I I hate to put the word misinformation out there though. There's Mm. tons of it. It's really hard to, to wade through those waters at times. Well, and it's, we live in a clickbait culture too, right? Like if you've got a terrible idea that you can sell really well, then you're going to win the the thought argument against a, a good idea that's not, that's not packaged well. Like that's just the reality of the world that we live in today. And so, you know, I, what I suspect is going to happen is eventually we're going to have um, a different way of consuming social media that allows us to to better use um, experts and their knowledge and and that kind of thing to help us sift through all that stuff that's just noise right now. But we're nowhere close to that at the moment. That's just going to be something that evolves over time. So it's a really risky place, I think, for especially parents of young athletes, but also athletes themselves who are trying to take ownership over their own training, maybe in the absence of coaches and uh, and and people guiding their development at this time. Um, I think there's a there's probably a spike in in terms of you know, the susceptibility to these kind of, um, you know, misuse of, of information. Yeah. No interesting times. We're talking with Dr. Joe Baker, sports scientist at York university. And it is an interesting time. There's so much data and information and we've learned so much, even over the last five years is this, this information age reign has been absolutely incredible. And yet uh, the NFL draft goes off in this virtual world, which I thought was fantastic, by the way. I mean, just great for sports and sport fans, whether you're a fan of football or not, it was just kind of really interesting to see the NFL move forward and find a way to, you know, get this information and get their fans back involved in the process of their sport and it brings me back to the whole concept of talent identification and these youngster, young players coming out of college, you know, signing their first major pro contracts, going in the draft. Um, this whole system is so intertwined. I think there's a lot we can learn from the talent selection world that can lead us down the path of thinking in the developmental world and vice versa. And I think you mentioned it earlier. Uh, this is all intertwined and, and the talent ID uh, world it has, has really given us a lot to think about in the, in the last few years. Yeah, and I think especially the the professional sport world and just recognizing how different it is as uh, as an ecosystem compared to the you know the what we'd call the amateur or Olympic sport world. Um, we've been doing some work with uh, with one of the professional baseball teams, and the way that they think about their draft selection is. Yeah, they they think about performance, but there's a dozen other variables that are relevant to an individual's selection Um, and and the the budgeting and all that extra stuff that goes into um, why you would choose one person over another. Just again, for the average person on the street who thinks about these things and, you know, the five minutes when they watch the blast on SportsCenter about the NFL draft. Um, the complexity that on un- that is underneath all of that decision making has just been for me uh, amazing to to watch. 
And I think it's still evolving as well. As you mentioned, we're still evolving, trying to figure out what really works and, and what doesn't work. And, you know, it seems like, you know, we, we look at, um, go back in the baseball world, for example, to the Billy Bean era, the Oakland A's, the money ball, the, the, the early reliance on statistics to move forward with, with maybe not the most in, incredible talent, but with a restricted budget uh, is a good sort of, I guess, maybe, um, um, a real life experiment that shows how we're adapting and learning in this new new age of information. Yeah, and it's interesting because we have a project underway right now, and maybe when um, when we're ready to to publish it, I'll I'll uh, send it to you so you can have a look. Um, but we're looking at the tracking of. Um, predictions of season performance over time and you would think like we're going back a 30-year period and you would think that somewhere along that 30-year period you'd expect to see a spike when analytics came in and and that overall over the 30 years you'd expect that prediction would get better because of improved models improved selection improved these this kinds of thing what we found is essentially flat um, that there hasn't been really much improvement in the way that we predict season performance um, in professional sports over the last 30 years, which for us was just, on the one hand, it means there hasn't been as much progression as we think. On the other hand, it suggests to us that maybe these kinds of predictions are um, you know, they're just there's a level of unpredictability that goes into this complex environment that just, you know, the, the very idea that you'd be able to predict this outcome um, doesn't make sense because it's too complex, oh. which I think is really interesting. No, that is interesting. It's incredibly interesting. And when you get inside some of these uh, organizations and look at, you know, the things that they hold valuable, uh, maybe the things and the attributes they find intriguing or of value in, in the young recruits that they, they make, or even in the way they develop their players inside of their organization can vary as well. And yet there's success across the board, isn't there? Isn't it amazing? Yeah, yeah. So Dr. Baker, thanks for your time today. Listen, this has been a fantastic discussion uh, as we sort of wade the waters through the COVID shutdown. What's on tap for Dr. Joe Baker and York University? We have a lot of uh, really exciting projects happening right now. Um, I've got a, a, a group of uh, amazing grad students that are just everywhere from uh, understanding Paralympic athlete development to understanding scouts and coaches' decision-making around talent selections and whether there's some basic information co- um, information processing biases that affect why they look at some players different than other players and how we can correct that all the way to developing better analytics and and models for golf or or cycling or or hockey it's just one day after the next is one is an exciting project uh to be working on so it's you know it's a shame that we don't get to interact in person uh as much as as we used to but the the group at york at least in our lab has been relatively seamless at just taking this whole discussion online and and uh full steam ahead so um yeah just really exciting time for the research that we're doing well i tell you what if you guys ever crack that code of talent idea there we'll be having a very very different conversation mister (laughs) because (laughs) i can't even imagine the price tag on that one for sure so Well, thank you for all the work you guys do in the world of sport, Dr. Baker, and thanks for your time today. Just a fantastic discussion and plenty more to come, I'm sure. Yeah, my pleasure, Jeff. Anytime. 
All right, and there you go, everybody. Dr. Joe Baker, sports scientist from York University, one of the best for sure. Uh, follow him on Twitter and lots of great publications coming out of that school when it comes to this very topic and and many others. They revolve around talent, skill acquisition, talent ID, and just the development of humans. This is a big, big piece of the puzzle and something we're constantly interested in because it's one of the underlying factors of long-term athlete development, attacking athletes in the moment, pushing human performance forward in our quest to better understand what it truly takes to achieve human maximum performance. And it's a big ticket item. There's no question about it. Everybody's looking for it, but there's no secrets out there. So many great, really kind of common sense things come out of this conversation, things that we all know probably, and a lot that we don't. One of the most interesting things I believe right now is the fact that we are not that good at predicting future talent. We'll keep you posted on Dr. Baker's work there, especially in this paper that's coming out that's looking at this long-term performance in talent ID. And this is going to be important because from the sounds of it, we're not getting any better. And, and I think, you know, if you look across the board, if we were to go back even 30 years, 50 years, 100 years, and look at the top draft picks, the top talent pool in every sport, you know, as they were developing or entering the professional leagues, college leagues, and how many of them actually aspired to compete at the highest levels of sport, the numbers are dismal. We might be getting a little bit better, but maybe that's because uh, sports science is now becoming more broadly accepted, and it's also now trickling down into the youth, and though we've gone overboard with early specialization, we're starting to recalibrate now and making sure our athletes are very well-rounded through those critical developmental years, playing multiple sports and getting really, really good coaching. So I'm fully expecting that human performance will be moving forward in the future, but will our ability to predict that future performance improve? It doesn't sound like it, and it is a conundrum. Are we looking at the wrong variables? Are we looking in the wrong places to predict what might happen in the future? Or, as Dr. Baker mentions, is it just too damn complex to be predictable? Is it too unpredictable to be predictable. I think that's more likely the case. There are way too many variables involved. There are just way too many variables involved to predict what's going to happen in the future. Now, a lot of organizations and a lot of scouts and a lot of talent ID people have come up with their own formulas, things that they find valuable. And I think that's really probably the best case scenario for now is trying to find out and really define what you find valuable as an organization find players and people that fit into that category or fit the mold and then move them forward. The most critical part of this whole thing is once somebody does enter that pipeline, let's give them every opportunity possible to achieve their potential. We still don't know how good they can become until they're given the chance. And that's where I think, you know, I still say to this day quite confidently that we, we aren't witnessing the best talent at the highest levels. We're just witnessing the people and the players who have persevered the system as broken as it is. And that alone makes those top performers incredibly special. But I wonder if we were to even help them out, if we were to turn back the hands of time and recalibrate and reevaluate how we're even helping today's top performers, how much better could they possibly be? Oh, 
Whew, I don't want to get crazy here. This is a rabbit hole for sure. But what a great conversation with Dr. Joe Baker. I want to thank him for that fantastic conversation. Again, if you want to go back and listen to this, please do so. Go to crushperformance.com, subscribe to the podcast, share this one with your teammates, your, your fellow coaches and your organizations and teachers and even business leaders. This conversation applies to everywhere humans are trying to perform at the highest level. doesn't matter what arena you're in, whether it's business, school, whether it's sports, it doesn't matter. Talent applies across the board. And that's why, you know, when we look at talent and the research in talent, most of it has nothing to do with sport. Some of the most prevalent, significant research in talent, talent ID and talent development has come from areas like music and, and the culinary arts and chess even. So when we put the big picture together, we start getting some kind of understanding. Sport, most certainly. And I think there's a lot more that needs to be done, and it will be for sure. Okay, great conversation today. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Listen, coming up next week on Crush Performance, we're going to get back to the performance thinking side. Dr. Jacques Delaire of Performance Prime will be joining us for another incredible conversation on performance thinking. And are we focusing on the right things? I think it's one of the biggest downfalls in performance right now is not the physical side. Listen, we're at a biological ceiling. You've heard me say this time and time again. When it comes to helping athletes become faster, higher, stronger, we've got this down pretty good. When it comes to skill acquisition inside of a sport, given time and effort, we can get a lot done. We will tap into that potential. There's no doubt about it. But when it comes to really, really getting things done, but when it comes to next week's conversation, we're going to look at are we focusing on the right things to truly utilize our physical abilities to the fullest potential? Oh, I can't wait. Dr. Jacques Delaire next week on the show. Until then, everybody, get out there, get better, and we'll talk to you next time right here on Crush Performance. Goodbye now. Don't forget to ride. This is a place for my head quick picks on Radio Influence. You guys might know him from Puddle of Mud. You might know him from Operator. You might know him from Rev Theory. He's one hell of a guitarist, one hell of a songwriter. His name is Paul Phillips. Dwelling doesn't help. You know, it only adds to the uh, to the anxiety because once you start dwelling on something and overthinking something and you get fixated on something, then it just becomes something crazy circulating in your head. You can't stop it. So then what do you do? Grab yeah, a and I was I was just talking. That's funny you say that because I, I was just talking with a friend kind of about that. It was kind of been uh, going through it a little bit. He's like, man, he's like, it's just not normal, man. He's like, I just, I just get drunk, and then I do these terrible things, and then I wake up the next day and I feel guilty about it. So what do I do? I drink more to make myself feel better, and then I just do more stupid things that I feel yeah. guilty about. I'm like, yep. It's a vicious cycle, man. Vicious, vicious cycle. It's a roller coaster that you can't, you can't get off. They keep passing that loading spot. And you're like, uh, can I get out now? Take the seatbelt off? No, we're just going to keep going. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> <Yeah>. Strap up. <laughs> yeah, man. Strap up. It's going to be a while. Yep, 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 yep. Oh, God. Uh, and how do you break it? It takes, you know, you said it a little bit ago, like it's everybody's own lives and what they want to do with it, this, that, and the other. But uh, I truly, 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 truly think that Nothing will really work unless you want it to. Yeah, hundred percent, man. Yeah, I mean, hey, man, if you go to rehab one time or you go to AA meetings or or what have you, and it works for you, hey, man, that is fantastic. I'm glad it did. Right. I would personally say it's not that's not for me, you know. And you know, like you said, people going in and out of rehabs, like including myself, 
yeah, I mean, you can go through the motions and like, sweet, I finished rehab. All right, I'm going to come outside. Everything's going to be great. I'm not going to worry about anything. No, wrong. You're not even going to make it to the airport before your life sucks. So what are you going to do at the airport? You're going to go to the bar and get a drink. All oh, that rehab was worked amazingly. A Place for My Head with Brandon Thompson and Jerry P. Tuck can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com. <laughs>